0: care for all You bros can suck my balls,
1: fuck your reply guys, please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. Uh, you know we're here, we're talking about the cats with one of our favorite and repeated reply guys uh and and also just favorite reply guys in general, um, mm-hmm. Ken Clippenstein, welcome back, Ken, thank you so much for doing this.
0: Hey, good to be with you guys. And I, I prefer the term, uh, MUFO, mutual follower. Yeah. Mutual absolutely. follower.
1: Oh Yeah. Um, that's no, that's very, uh, that's very important. I just, when I say reply guys, I mean, like, I feel like you're the, whenever I see like an amazing own of like a Natsack live.
0: <laughs> the good, the
1: <laughs> yeah. I just, I see you up in there. Um, and yeah, I mean, go ahead. Oh yeah. I was
2: just going to say that reply guy is not an inherently pejorative term. Uh, it can be used for good as you so often do but on the show we when you're not here and we've referenced you before we um we usually just call you the foia king
1: yeah yeah that's true that is she's she's being 100 percent honest about I'm, that. I am. I'm I'm not joking about that. I
2: I'm have thinking
0: that. The, I'm thinking a Simpsons episode, the Plow King. I need to get one of those uh, <laughs> leather jackets with an embroidered uh, thing in the back. king.
1: We actually yeah, I mean, we, we talk about it all the time. The, actually, the, the whole podcast, uh, unbeknownst to you, has been about your uh, FOIA lawsuits. We're yeah, just doing it every week, doing a rundown, like a recap of uh, your information requests. Um,
2: so a lot's happened this week, and we were talking about this a little bit before the show when I just said, how are you, uh, yeah. Ken? I was more just asking, you know, as a friend, Ken, how are you? And Ken immediately uh, just launched into uh, Afghanistan talk, uh, which s- s- says a lot about the state of Ken's spirit. Yeah. Um,
0: Would you want me? A phony? I'd be like, oh, oh yeah, things are looking up. I joined uh, SoulCycle. I'm, you know, I'm pushing to the next level. I
2: don't want you to be a phony. I just <laughs> look. I don't want you to be a phony. I'm just, I'm just worried about you as a friend. Uh, so, but, but also, I, I can, I can, can sympathize with your plight and uh, as someone who's, who's in the, in the trenches. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we wanted to talk to you today about about the developments that have, have gone on this week.
1: I When you first said that a lot has happened this week, we were talking about, I mean, which obviously has, but you're like, we were talking about before the show, but what we were talking about before the show was... How bad our cats are. So I was like, Julia, that's not the that's main true. thing that's happening this week.
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> it's all about little. That's one of the girls. main. Yeah, that's um. one of the main things that's happening this week. And little June, you know, she she can't escape criticism. She's not above criticism just because she's a girl boss. Um, and that's that.
0: Yeah. The, ter- the terrible oversight in uh, the part of the national press court. Uh, that's right. Picked up on what's going on with these. With these feline friends' ears, thank
1: yeah. you. Thank yeah, yeah, dude. I man, Ken, if next time you come back on the show, it's to talk about how uh, they're they've been running surveillance of Little Pearl, I'm just going to be so upset. You know, <laughs> that's
0: the line, yeah. yeah, surveillance of an entire country, Afghanistan, and all of its inhabitants, or you know, attempt to do that. That's fine, but what you you know, what's too far for me is watching my pets. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes. Um. All right, so I, I do want to talk about your your article that just came out I think yesterday for the intercept. I mean, just truly, truly horrifying information, which is um, well I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you go into it, but but basically that the US has been um, conducting biometric, Surveillance, I guess, I would say, uh, and that now the Taliban has all this data. It's just horrifying on many levels. Can you? I, I'm sure I, I butchered this. So why don't you, as the author of this article, fill us in?
0: Yeah. So um, the U.S. military over the last ten to fifteen years, basically the whole war on terror, the war in Afghanistan being the longest uh, war that the U.S. has been engaged in in its history. Uh, conducted uh, biometric surveillance of um, reporting suggests as much as 80% of the country. They wanted to try to get into this um, database. uh, What biometric surveillance is, things like uh, fingerprints, iris scans, face scans, very similar to what your iPhone can do, Um, but going into a federal government repository, to um, keep track of uh, what it was sold and marketed and and built as was the uh, method to keep track of insurgents and terrorists. But what I found uh, in investigating this story, I interviewed a lot of current and former um, intelligence officials and military officials uh, was that they pretty much threw in as many Afghans as they could, allies, people that helped us, translators, um, militants and insurgents as well, but just it seemed like everyone and the reporting suggests uh, that's in the public record suggests that they wanted to get as many Afghans as they could into this system because foreigners under the law, generally speaking, they have very few rights. They have you know far fewer rights than U.S. citizens do, and so um, you know the problem here is that now that the uh, Taliban has you know taken over. The country they were able to acquire a lot of uh, this biometrics data and the concern on the part of a lot of you know folks in the military and intelligence community is that they could use the data that we gather via our uh, military contractors for our purposes they could use that to hunt down and uh, potentially uh, exact retribution against people that help the uh, united states or the coalition forces
1: It's just so disgusting, especially because you know, for a lot of the people who did help the United States, they were promised that they would be able to come here, you know, um, to avoid you know almost almost certain retribution from the Taliban, and you know, we have uh, let's just say fallen short on on many of those promises. It seems.
0: yeah, it's, ter- it's horrifying that not only I mean, um, if you I have a friend who is working with Afghans trying to get them out of the country. And uh, there's a there's a website that the State Department has where they're supposed to process, uh, you know, requests for, um, you know, uh, asylum requests, essentially. Uh, for people that are under credible threat, you know, from their governments and the website, literally the, the email, they couldn't take emails anymore because it was full from some like they, mm-hmm. someone hadn't had the foresight to think, oh, gee, you know, if there's a, you know, if there's a war or, or uh, coup or conflict or something, maybe there's going to be a bunch more emails than we usually get on a given day. You literally can't get through the formal channels that exist. So that's the extent of the failure that you see here, not just that they didn't have the foresight to get them out of there before you withdraw the troops, but that they're not even, even able to process these things on you know the most basic level uh, in, a, in a crisis scenario. So it's it looks really bad. And I say this as someone who, you know, don't think that it's irrational to not want to be um, continuing a war that we've been engaged in for 19 years now. Again, the longest one spent over a trillion dollars on, I can understand, wanted to withdraw, but it's the way that, um, the administration wondered about doing that that's really frustrating i think to to you know people of all sorts of different political stripes that i interviewed uh you know in the military for the story
1: i 100 percent agree i mean I, you know i protested when uh the war began but before it started i you know i i am happy that uh, we are not continuing this forever war and yet like it just seems like like of all the ways to withdraw that um, we put people in the most danger possible. Like, and I I don't know, that's what it seems like to me. I mean, I've been talking with um, some people who are trying to get uh, journalists out of the country um, that are almost certainly a risk. And um, yeah, it just, it seems like, it seems like this was incredibly poorly thought through to me.
0: What drives me crazy is the amount of buck passing that's taking place. Yeah. Uh, wherein the intelligence community is saying, "Oh no, there was an intelligence failure. You know, this is on the administration. We did try to." And you know, I talk to people. I know people in the NSA. I know people in the CIA. And wow, what, what they cool. all tell me is that? <laughs> well, it's interesting. That's your response. A lot of people have a different joking. response on, on the on the left. i like, <laughs> I know you know
1: leakers. You gotta. <laughs> yeah. You get those leaks. People are on, on signal. Yeah.
0: I'll say this. Yeah, it's not a monolith. There are people inside that um, don't feel great about you know the direction in which things are taking place. Um, but th- what I hear from them is very different from what they're publicly saying, which is that a lot of their internal uh, classified assessments held that they had months before the government was going to fall. So as far as I can tell, when I talked to them, there was some, at least some aspect of an intelligence failure here. Um, but uh, you know, they're trying to avoid responsibility. The administration is trying to uh, blame it on the intelligence community, which um, in in fairness to them, the administration should know that the intelligence is going to be sunny. It always is. The intelligence community is always blowing smoke up the ass of the president. That's the history of, you know, uh, post-war intelligence and surely stuff before then, is you look at it and say, oh, you know, the job we're doing, it's going great, sir. Things are going to be yeah. fine. That's what they do. And someone like, Biden, who runs on experience and being, you know, maybe I'm not your first choice, but I'm going to be the safe choice, should know better than that. He's said so much time in government and overseen so many, uh, frankly, failed <laughs> wars and military engagements. He should realize that that uh, is, you know, going to be a factor. And and uh, evacuate people before you move the troops. That doesn't, I'm sympathetic to that, um, you know, the withdrawal was always going to be ugly. It was always going to be imperfect. Um, but, you know, to, to not have had the diplomatic staff um the translators, so on and so forth to not have made an effort to get them out before you remove the troops is just insane to me i don't understand that
2: well also i have so i have kind of like a two-pronged question um apart from kind of evacuating people before the withdrawal um my first question is what would a Less of a shit show withdrawal have looked like? And also, is this not partly a function of the fact that the State Department has been more or less hollowed out in the past three decades?
0: Yeah, that's a really important point uh, that you raise. There's been a de emphasis move away from diplomacy. Uh, even as we're giving more and more resources to the Defense Department, which, you know, you don't have to be a pacifist to, uh, I mean, you can talk to guys in the military and say, we're not suited to dealing with political issues. You know, we wield a sword. We don't, uh, we're not supposed to negotiate. And they're being put in a position where they essentially have to do that because they've hollowed out the State Department so much, not just under the Trump administration. So there are two dynamics going on here. The Trump administration, they they accelerated um, a tendency that already existed and had been going on for decades and decades, just pulling money out of um, uh, the Department of State, which handles you know uh, diplomacy. They have the ambassadors. They have the diplomatic staff. And uh, so this is a tendency going back at least 30 or 40 years. There's a very good book on this called um, State versus Defense, talking essentially about how the Pentagon won the sort of bureaucratic conflict in Washington, competition in Washington for funding, for resources, for prestige, for uh, power. And when you concentrate all of that in the Defense Department, there's a lot they just can't do because these guys, again, they are trained for uh, kinetic engagement for military conflict they don't know how to negotiate that's not their job no and um, so the, you're 100% the, right yeah. to to point to that as as you know a huge part of the problem because a lot of this stuff you don't need super secret spies running everywhere to figure out <laughs> that the Taliban was probably going to overrun uh, Kabul pretty quickly um that's something that you know if if you have the diplomatic resources that, you know, any sane state would, uh, they probably would have gotten wind of a lot of this stuff. Mm. So that's, yeah, that's really important. That's a systemic thing that's been that of which, you know, Biden and Trump and Obama and all of these guys were a part of, I'm not saying in exactly the same way, Trump accelerated this tendency and was certainly much worse. Um, But, you know, we need to start funding diplomacy. I I don't know how else to, um, you know, address Kind of problems of this magnitude w- without that, unfortunately. I mean, even even people
2: cool. in the defense community agree with that. Totally. Um. There. You know. I. I read Ronan Farrow's book, uh, War on Peace, and you know he has his own biases, of course, but I think he makes a lot of salient points about what happens uh, when the country completely kind of abandons diplomacy as a force of. Conflict management and resolution. Um, even you know there was like a general who said, "If you're going to keep firing diplomats, you better buy me more bullets." <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> totally. That's the thing is, I, you can talk to these guys in the DOD. These are like two-star, three-star generals. They'll say the same stuff. This is not some. I mean, I have my own politics. This is not. It's not like it's a lefty position. Point. Yeah. One hundred percent.
1: To me, like I, you know, I have had really conflicting feelings about the way that people are talking about this um i think you know i mean like obviously any any leftist should should not want i think like the united states to be occupying a country it's fucked up but at the same time you know i know for myself personally i'm having a lot of feelings about just like the devastating reality of what women and girls in particular are experiencing right now um i don't know i mean to me like there there's just something that feels like a little glib about like we knew it like of course we knew it and and by we knew it i mean that like the taliban would take over that this was all for nothing i mean except to to make war profiteers more profits but i I don't know there is just something that feels like I, there, there's something that just feels like pretty glib about like not acknowledging like how how devastating this is to to a lot of people's lives to i don't know what what is your feeling about this i'm not being very coherent i'm sorry
0: no it's a hard uh topic to you know n- not get angry about because um what you're saying is 100 true the taliban is a you know far-right reactionary uh force that wants to you know impose uh horrifying political conditions on not just women, but, um, you know, any sort of, um, marginalized group in in the country. And, and, you know, we have to be honest about that. And I I think the frustration that I have as well is that uh, we're not taking responsibility and acting as though, uh, if you look at Biden's address, he says that Afghans weren't willing to fight for their their own country. Gee, why do you think that is? Do you think it's because they, they, they love living under the boot of the Taliban Or do you think it's because the government that we established was so corrupt that uh, it's reported today, the president fled to the UAE with um, uh, both Russian and uh, uh, Afghan diplomats, they say, uh, tens of millions of dollars in bags, like just trash bags that he's running a plane with. Could that have something to do with their unwillingness to fight and not so much, you know, liking the Taliban, but just hating this completely um, illegitimate uh, government that we put in? Um, which is a continuation, you know, of, of how we've handled things in the past in Vietnam and Iraq, Iran, unpopular governments. Yeah. And people hate them. And maybe there are reasons that people hate them. So um, I agree with you. <laughs> there should be anger about this and not just kind of like, you know, we did our best and they just didn't want freedom. No, that's not true. <laughs> there are people clinging to planes trying to get out of there. Mm. It literally, you know, falling off planes, like trying to escape the country, uh, trying to get somewhere where they can you know, live a better life. So clearly they're willing to put you know, they're themselves at risk, just they weren't willing to put themselves at risk for this government. And I don't think they're crazy to feel that way.
2: No, and I think that there are a lot of parallels between the U.S.'s uh, intervention in Iran and Afghanistan. People use the same sort of, especially when we're talking about women in these countries. Um, You know, I've seen the pictures going around uh, of like, women in afghanistan before like the taliban or something like that wearing miniskirts which i actually think might be a a photo of iranian women i don't think it is afghani (laughs) afghan women not afghani afghan women um but yeah this idea that like miniskirt equals freedom and like burqa equals uh servitude you know i'm I am very sensitive to certainly the, the plight of women and girls here as well. But I do think that from both ends, the way that we talk about the treatment of women under both of these, like us imposing our own sort of like capitalistic feminism on them is not better. Well, I shouldn't say it's not better
1: I see what you're day. saying.
0: Like, there are different features of w- what, it, what it means to have a sort of, like, democratic political life. And, like, yes. uh, Americans tend to want to look for these very simple, like, indicators, you know, like, oh, here they are um, going on a roller coaster or something, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. it's like a little bit more complex than that.
1: Yeah. It's it's always the, the there's most... There's babes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? I'm just like, thinking this just... is... Uh, freedom to, means hot chicks yeah
0: back to the simpsons i'm thinking of the um, navy recruitment episode where they're just they just they just bomb a rock and next thing you see they're playing beach volleyball women playing beach volleyball oh my the god that's so funny <laughs> that's like how americans try to conceptualize these things but it's like you know there are questions of like what are the socioeconomic conditions like? What, are the, what is literacy rate like? Are they able to go to schools? Things like that. That is a lot more complicated. People don't seem to want to like, uh, you know, think through. And I think when you look at those, you see a much more mixed picture about the government that existed. I mean, there were certainly improvements, but the the, the corruption was just off the charts. I mean, the, we poured over a trillion dollars into this government, and it was just a cash grab for contractors. And to me, if your goal is to uh, you know, as, as leaders like uh, Bush just assert, and nobody seems to question them. If your goal is to try to introduce democracy, you're not going to have this cash grab for contractors. Yeah. But unfortunately, that's what we had. So I don't take at their word this notion that, oh, we just wanted to give them freedom and they turn their nose up at it. I, I don't think it's that simple.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's also like the entire the entire like premise of like oh you know we have to uh have this war because it'll be you know really feminist or something like you know th- regardless of like what <laughs> what you think feminism is i i don't think that anybody is like oh yeah i mean this i'm so uh liberated now that you killed all the people i know you know like yeah. that's not <laughs> um you know I also think that I mean it's it's just it's been wholly exposed as you know as completely disingenuous like this this whatever feminist motivation because I mean like at the end of the day um I mean like female journalists and like uh, you know other like women's rights activists and stuff I mean like a lot of them are still in like imminent danger right now yeah. are, are we chartering flights out for them? No. Like, is there still like a 75 gajillion step visa process? Uh, Yes. And I mean, I, you know, I'm not the journalist. It probably isn't really 75 gajillion, but it's a lot. It's, it's definitely not an automatic, like, oh, hey, we're going to do everything that we can to, to actually, you know, protect you in in the way that we claimed this was about, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, what the conflict was really about, I feel like my story about the, uh, biometrics devices that the uh, Taliban seized that those devices to me are sort of an emblem of what the conflict ended up really being about. I mean, you know, it's complicated and there was a lot going on, but a big part of it was just a ca- again, a cash grab for these contractors. And so we end up having all of these ridiculous, um, uh, you know, things that we're just selling that are kind of like um, the biometric stuff always kind of struck me as like, you um, it's like Juicero or something. It's like, oh, what if we just get, what if what if we just Wi-Fi enable all this data that we have and, and hope that nothing happens when, <laughs> when, when invariably, you know, another government pushes out ours. And it's like, th- that to me says what the priorities of the m- mission were. You know, some people made a lot of money off of it. There were a lot of fancy things and gear and equipment sold. Um, but, you know, how much of that uh, ended up benefiting ordinary Afghans? Like, I- I'm not going to say that You know, there were certain gains made, but I mean, it sort of pales in comparison to just the, just the lavish amounts of money that were, that, that was um, uh, given to all of these contractors and for what, you know, was this stuff necessary?
1: Who specifically are we talking about that made a lot of money? Because I mean, I, we, we all know that people were making a lot of money, but like, you know, who are, who are the major players that profited from this?
0: Contractors all over the place. I mean, if you talk to people, again, people, conservatives in the military who wouldn't agree with me on, you know, maybe hardly anything, you start talking to them and they will start raving about how bad and um, uh, corrosive the effect of privatization uh, has been because functions that used to be carried out by the government and, you know, however you feel about the US government, uh, you know, I've criticized it plenty. Not a fan. Yeah. Uh, It's it's you can at least in theory influence it uh, democratically when you have private bodies doing things. I can't FOIA it. There's no transparency. Um, You can't influence it unless you're an investor, which, you know, is going to make it so a lot of people are not going to, you know, be able to have a say in it because a lot of people don't have money. Um, You know, it's essentially a privately run system that the investor class is able to run for their own interests. And that's completely aside from the uh, military, which again, however you feel about that, it has some kind of, um, uh, you know, at least pretextual um, uh, subordination to the to the public or or to the you know elected officials. Not the case at all with any of these businesses, and I think that's why we saw what we saw, which is that they were able to make a whole lot of money, but it wasn't able to advance even imperial goals, if you think Mm. about it. I mean, um, I don't think Washington wanted the Taliban to win. Um, It's just that it was so corrupt. And for whatever reason, they were unwilling to, um, you know, put this power in the hands of um, the Defense Department and the State Department and the government, really. And they just, you know, let it be like this um, sort of game show where everyone could just go out there and try to grab as much money. I mean, you could talk to so many people in the military. They'll say, you know, I retired as early as I could so I could double dip and then go into the private sector where I make a whole lot more money. And then oh, I yeah. ask them, you say, well, how do you feel about that work? They're like, well, it's not as rewarding because I'm just making money, but it's a lot of money. And to me, it's like, if you're serious about, you know, introducing gov- introducing democracy to government, you're not going to tolerate those kind of conditions, but they did. So I have to wonder what the, point, what the point really was.
2: At what point will we as a nation abandon the notion that we are able to spread democracy anywhere.
0: <laughs> well, it's useful to do that because then you can get a whole lot of people who perhaps aren't going to make money off of these contracts. It, that's how you get them to acquiesce to these things, because mm. otherwise it's very unpopular. I mean, if you look at the Iraq war, for instance, the polling around it um, was actually pretty split. And if you compare that to past conflicts, the uh, it, it, it's pretty unusual for Prior to a war, the government, the public being opposed to it, mm-hmm, yeah. um, historically, the public had often been sort of jingoistic and supportive of of foreign conflict. Iraq was pretty unusual. There were a lot of reports coming up questioning WMD, things like that. And I'm not saying that that got front page billing in the Times or anything, but there was, there was a kind of hesitation on the part of the public. And so the way you get people to acquiesce to things is you have to make, uh, since they're not going to be making money off of it, you have to make a moral case and say, hey, look, we want to help them. And so as long as people are receptive to that, I think we'll keep hearing it. But it feels to me like people are a lot more skeptical than, than they have been in the past. I mean, uh, I, I know that um, uh, if you look at polling around the war on terror, the reason this withdrawal was even able to happen was because people are so tired of it and they don't believe the government anymore when they say, you know, oh, we just want to lavish all these wonderful things on, on, on this country. So certainly attitudes have changed, but they'll keep pushing that line as long as it's um, expedient to them, I think.
1: Well, I mean, the original way that this war was justified, of course, was, you know, in retaliation for September 11th and to find Osama bin Laden. And we found him like – what 2011 <laughs> 10 years in Pac- ago in, in pakistan, pakistan yeah
0: which was never explained to us why he's there or if the pakistani government knew he was there because the pakistani government is supposed to be our ally don't worry about any of that you know <laughs> again this if you look at what the, you can tell what the priorities were um by where all the money went how much effort was there to find out where he was in pakistan which it was widely understood that it was probably somewhere in pakistan um, if I remember the reporting from that time, um, no, the, the, all the money was just going in Afghanistan and Iraq instead. So that to me, gives you a sense of how serious they were about, you know, um, the, the, purport, the purported goals, you know, to get bin Laden, get his network. Uh, you know, so then why aren't we talking to the Pakistanis about where in the country he is, you know? So- and
2: also after we found Osama bin Laden, why did it take an additional 10 years for us to withdraw from Afghanistan? Exactly.
0: Exactly.
1: A lot of people are blaming whatever deal Trump made about the specifics of the withdrawal, you know, as a way of kind of like, I don't know. I don't know why. I guess just because it's fun to to blame Trump for things. But like, to what degree, do, do you think that like the particular messy way that that went down, that left so many people in, you know, more danger than they needed to be. Um, Is, I mean, is that something that could have been avoided by Biden?
0: Well, I think it's very similar to what we were saying about the State Department, um, which is that Trump tended to um, exacerbate and intensify uh, negative tendencies that had already existed. Um, But I also think it's a mistake to say, oh, he's the same. And I'm not saying that you guys are saying this, but, you know, there's a tendency uh, on the part of media particularly, because there's a lot of pressure on us to be like, oh, we're being even handed where they're like, well, you know, Trump is bad here. This guy's bad there. Who can say what the difference is? No, Trump was a lot worse. Um, and uh, the way in which uh, he handled negotiations, I mean, really, he should have been the one to move people out of the country because he already, once he announces his intent, a lot of folks in the CIA say, and uh, in, I interviewed a lot of people in the agency and in DOD for this story, they say that the minute Trump made that statement, um, we're going to withdraw. Taliban starts making deals, cutting deals with the government, because if you're a sane person, you're going to want to end up on the right side of the conflict right. after whenever it is they leave yeah. happens. Not just for to avoid retribution, but to continue to have a job if you're you know in the government, that kind of thing. So what we're really seeing, um, the, what looks like a sudden collapse, there had been termites kind of like um, you know burrowing in and, and 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 eating the the foundation of the government for for as long as it's been since Trump. Announced his intention to withdraw. We just saw what we saw was sort of the culmination of that. Yeah. So it's not like they just. I mean, you know, people only. The media only pays attention, you know, in this spectacular moment of collapse. But that had been a process that had been going on. And my understanding is that people were being bribed. They were being offered money ahead of time, saying, "Look, we're going to win." He already said that he's going to lose. Come work for us when we come. You know, don't resist when, when we when we sweep through. Your uh, municipality, or or city, or town, or whatever, and and we'll let you go, and maybe we'll let you have a place in the government, that kind of thing. So that all happens, and and any sane person would know that that's going to start to happen as soon as as soon as the announcement is made. So really, he should have started the withdrawal. Um, you know, that said, he didn't. Um, Biden should have done it sooner before, at least before he removed military troops, because you you know you'll recall he there were a bunch more troops there that served as a sort of deterrent. Uh, there's a I think there's a big misconception that things would, there would have been stability if we had just kept with the status quo, but that's not really true. My understanding is that the Taliban was still making gains even prior to the withdrawal of the uh, military forces by Biden. So really he was in a tough spot where he's either gonna have to do another surge even just to maintain the baseline of stability that they had, which he wasn't willing to do, and I don't fault him for not being willing to do, but to pull the troops out before you've pulled out the diplomatic staff and uh, the translators and our allies. That's something that I would uh, fault Biden for. Not as much as I would fault Trump, but um, certainly, certainly fault him for as well.
2: Mm. Yeah, it it is hard to overstate how I I think about the State Department a lot because it it, it just has been reduced to rubble, and I don't think that people understand. Um, how much Donald Trump just took that already, as you said, already existing pattern and ramped it up to 11. They called it uh, like when he very first came to office, they called it like the massacre on mahogany row um, where he just fired like so many diplomats were, were fired. We, for most of his presidency, we had major outposts uh, like major, international embassies that had no ambassador um in south america in the middle east and it's abs it's just i i don't know i even with i i think that it's fair to say that biden will 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 be better than that but i i don't think the pendulum is going to swing back far enough um that something like this Would be prevented from happening again because we are so disproportionately reliant on the military. Um, And again, it's been 30 to 40 years coming for this. It's been since the Reagan administration.
0: Yeah, I think it's a feature of neoliberalism, which is just Mm -hmm. defunding of government generally. And so long as you're defunding it, they're going to say, okay, well, what do we, you know, how are we going to prioritize, or, you know, like, what do we want to keep and what are we going to cut? and unfortunately diplomacy has always been you know one of the first to get cut when you talk to people in the diplomatic space i know a woman who retired um, in her early 40s so under trump they had they used a euphemism it's like a corporate euphemism they called it the reorg it's almost like the we're downsizing you know a mm. nice way to say we're going
1: <laughs> oh my god finish.
0: and if you talk to any of these diplomats they were horrified because what ended up happening was, you know, um, they don't have enough resources. Job becomes a big headache. So a lot of the most experienced people they just left voluntarily because it's giving me too much headache. Um, uh, some of them put, got put out to pasture by Trump because he was so paranoid about the, you know, deep state liberals undermining his administration. He, this is a whole other kind of funny story. He moved a bunch of them to the FOIA office so they could have the most irrelevant job possible. And I, <laughs> they, they actually ended up helping me there. So that was beneficial <laughs> to me. <laughs> but, those, um, those
2: are your best friends. Yeah, exactly.
0: You can imagine how helpful someone is when they've been, you know, um, taken from their, you know, very lofty position uh, that they've had for many years and suddenly they're put out to pasture. They're going to be angry and willing to help you with things. And that was the t- Tendency that I found, <laughs> I found to exist in the State Department at that time, which personally was good, but for the country, it's very bad because what ends up happening is you lose decades of diplomatic experience, relationships that these individuals have um, with you know principal figures, not just in Ford governments but in uh, corporations, that kind of thing, and then you end up putting in people in their twenties and 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 thirties, which you know uh, we're, all, we're all fans of being being in that age group, but they just don't have the same degree of relationships and experience and things and that really hurts our foreign policy um, insofar, in you know, maybe you don't agree, I don't agree with a lot of aspects of foreign policy, but in avoiding conflict and things like that, that can be something that's beneficial and we've just lost all of those guys and then just institutionally, you talk to these folks, even in the executive um, agents, even in the agencies like FBI, CIA, a lot of the, 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 if you talk to the recruiters, they said they can't compete because everyone's just going into finance because that's where all the money in the society is. Yeah, that So makes sense. you get all of the people that you know would like to work in public service but i mean if you can make four or five or ten times as much on wall street that's a tough sell Mm -hmm. you know so it's being hollowed out in all sorts of different ways uh that i think you could broadly fit under the sort of rubric of neoliberalism which is you know just pumping more money into the private sector and, and 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 removing it from uh the public sector and that ends up having a very you know um just has a really bad effect on governance
1: Mm. yeah i mean it's the whole situation it's just it's just incredibly sad i'm i just want to make sure that um for a second we talk about um like admitting refugees um i mean is that something you know obviously the asylum process under trump was like a complete disaster do you know if the biden administration has any plans to reduce the the obstacles for people who are seeking to to come here
0: that's been a point of big disappointment of a lot of folks is how unwilling he's been to allow now i'm not suggesting he was as bad as trump i mean trump was you know awful and unprecedented um with with regard to processing asylum claims and things and biden's better but a lot less better than people had hoped. I mean, if you talk to people in the Department of Homeland Security, they were surprised by how little has changed in a lot of respects. Um, Again, I'm not saying it's the same, but um, Biden has been wholly unwilling. You know, I have a source close to the White House that was telling me that there's a lot of anxiety on the part of uh, the administration to allow in these uh, refugees. And it sounds like some of the anxiety comes from what sound like right-wing talking points, concerns of, oh, if we let in these Afghans, what if one does a terror attack how is that going to look for our administration despite there being no evidence that there's any sort of risk of that happening. They're just repeating these things. And, um, and the extent to which it's true is that, you know, if anything happened, the right wing media would go into overdrive and say, this is the guy, you know, tearing the country apart, that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, unfortunately he's been very disappointing in this particular respect. I would say that there've been things about the administration that have been sort of um, heartening, for example, the, the, the size of the, um, the size of the um, infrastructure bill that they're debating now is far, you know, larger than it was the, when Obama was debating it. Um, the uh, the uh, the economic bill that he passed was larger than expected. But specifically with regard to um, immigration, he's been a lot closer to the right than than I think. People oh yeah,
2: felt. and you know, Canada has just said that they I think are taking seventy thousand. Re- they're taking at least seventy thousand refugees. I don't know. I, I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head. And there was a um, there was some mainstream media columnist who said, oh, if the United States did this at the same scale it would mean us taking a hundred and seventy thousand refugees. And I was like, we can afford it. <laughs> there's, there's room, you know.
0: Yeah, like in unparalleled like large country, um uh just like amazing degree of like safety like we don't really have enemies in either of our borders which is true of a lot of countries um you know extraordinary wealth and then a declining birth rate which is going to cause serious problems for um people as they retire i, I there's no doubt da- i don't see a, any sort of downside to it so it's so crazy so
2: me i mean not to be completely morbid but over half a million people have died in the past year uh, from the coronavirus. So I, right. declining also- birth rates
0: have very serious effects on, on, you know, economic uh, structures. So it's like perfectly, even if you're not someone like, I think there's a moral case for it. That's overwhelming. But even if you don't care about that, just a purely economic case. So I don't understand the hesitation about it.
2: Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, and usually the people who are talking about that, um, declining birth rates and stuff. Like a lot of the times um, it's conservative people that are just kind of uh, laundering their white nationalism or right. something that sounds a little bit more, you know, it sounds a little bit, a little bit 70. less like uh like white nationalism, like J.D. Vance right. and shit. Um, <laughs> right. But yeah, I mean, there's absolutely, you know, like the United States is, is going to need a labor force and there's absolutely no reason that that has to be like, white little babies like that's not right. something that has to right. happen you know and um, i just want to fact
2: check myself and say that canada is actually taking 20,000 uh 20,000 refugees but and the person who was tweeting about this was karun demirian uh who's a reporter who contributes to Washington Post and she's a cN and she's a CNN lady. And she said, if the United States did this at a similar scale to the domestic population, it would mean taking over one hundred and seventy thousand Afghan refugees.
1: I mean, but um, we also again, have a different responsibility, I think, to, to do that one hundred this war. like we yeah. should be taking
2: you know, it shouldn't just be according to population and scale. We should be taking it's our fault. <laughs> like we should. Yeah, there's-
0: there's something so Sisyphean about it all because it happens every military conflict. I mean, yeah. go back to Iraq, for instance. What happened to the Kurds? We had made them all these promises about, you know, they're going to get their own state. They're going to, you know, just fight for us, fight ISIS for us. No mean feat. I'm not excited to go out and <laughs> fight with these head choppers, you know, <laughs> and they, they, you know, they they fought. They were like the um, shock troops against the Islamic State. And, uh, and then we just completely betrayed them. Yeah. And then before that, the same thing with Vietnam. And Vietnam? you know, the yeah. forces loyal to us. And now in Afghanistan, it happens again and again and again. It gets it just gets really old.
1: Why does anyone believe us? I mean, I guess not a lot of choice in some situations. Exactly.
0: We yeah. cut deals with people that don't have great options.
1: Um, well, Ken, we're almost at the the end of the time that we have together, but I do want to ask you, like, is there any other aspect of this story that you feel like the, you know, the media is, is overlooking a lot?
0: Well, I would say, um, sort of like with the withdrawal, these, you know, these, these hide devices stands for handheld interagency identity, uh, detection equipment, um, that the Taliban's acquired and now potentially can access all of this, you know, identifying data about Afghans. Again, that's bad that that happened, but the but the real sin happened, I think, in disseminating all this equipment in the first place, which is like with the withdrawal. The, the 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 important decisions were to be made years and years ago when they first started handing all this stuff out. When you know there were experts in the privacy community warning that exactly this might happen. I wish that we had listened to them, and I and going forward, I think it would be wise. I I, I quote the um, chief technology officer of a uh, some big human rights group, I can't remember what the org is mm-hmm. called. And he basically says it looks like there was absolutely no thought put into privacy at all in the, in the um, implementation and, and development of these products. So I, I feel like maybe we should work from the assumption that at some point these things could fall into the wrong hands and then act accordingly rather than kind of hoping for the best and <laughs> just kind of naively going into this with uh, not just, you know, this in Afghanistan, but with technology in general because there's always this attitude that um, you know, let's just make everything Wi-Fi capable. <laughs> and, and, you know, like, hopefully nothing bad will happen. Unfortunately, it does. And I hope that that's the message that folks take back from this.
1: Uh, well, Ken, even though this is, these are heavy topics, it's always really nice to have you on the show. And it's really fun to talk to you. Um, where can our listeners find you? I'm imagining they almost all follow you already. But
0: the blue, the blue, the little blue bird we call Twitter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 the, little blue bir- the little blue bird in the pale blue dot.
1: Um, We will link the story in the show notes. Um, Thanks so much for listening and thank you so much for coming on the show, Ken. Great to talk to you guys. Thank you so
2: much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash reply guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists and comedians with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They're always with us.
1: Bernie, take us out.